Welcome everyone to the Lifelong Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Molly from Three Pines Leadership, and thank you for joining me for yet another episode. Mm. Today, I want you to think back, way back if you have to, or maybe for some of you, it might be not as far back as some of us, but I want you to think about the first time you really felt like you belonged somewhere. I want you to think about all of those different groups and communities along the journey of your life that you have encountered where you really feel like you belong. You feel like the people get you and that you can be your true self. You can have your opinions. You can ask questions. You can fumble along the way. And the people in this community that you're thinking of are there to support you and allow you to thrive. Well... For me, one of the first places that I had that experience was when I was in high school. I used to be part of uh, the Toronto Poetry Slam world, I guess. I was a slam poet. I was a spoken word artist. um, And I found this community and it just completely changed my life. And the person, um, one of the people who was at the helm of this community, there were so many incredible people along the way who have had their hand in organizing and being leaders in the spoken word community across the country. Because I've been blessed to be able to perform on stages across North America. And this, this culture and this community breeds such such vulnerability and openness between people. And it really inspired me to to start this mission to change the world. Because, hi, if you're new here, I'm Molly and I want to change the world. <laughs> and if you want to change the world, connect with me. Three Pines Leadership, uh, Coach Molly on Twitter. Um, I want to know, how do you want to change the world? What are you doing to, to do that? Um, and how can I help you with it? <laughs> So, as I was saying, one of the amazing leaders and organizers within the spoken word community is a man named David Silverberg. And he is just a joy. He's just, I know I say that about everyone. I know, I know, but it's true. Um, David Silverberg is a master of words. He is such a wordsmith, I guess would be the word. Um, I'm obviously not. <laughs> Uh, he's a writer, he's a screen or he's a journalist and he's a stage writer. He wrote um, a one-man play that you'll hear about. And um, and on top of that, he also is the master of haikus. Just just putting that out there. Share share your haikus with me if you are an enjoyer of haikus. Remember, you can find the Lifelong Podcast on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Share it with anyone um, you think would enjoy it. But I want to share this conversation I had with Dave Silverberg at the Mindset and Impact Virtual Summit. Um, he gave an amazing presentation about finding inspiration in your community, where he talks about uh, the poetry slam world um, and so much more. Uh, and then I got to sit down with him and go a little bit deeper into these things. And I, I have to say, this interview leaves me more energized when I listen to it, more inspired to change the world um, because of people like Dave. There are people out there who have a vision and have a passion for the change that they want to see in the world and they're willing to do the hard work for it um, because they see the value and they see the importance. Um, so yeah, I hope this I hope this interview inspires you as much as it inspired me. 
And you can listen to Dave's full talk um, available at the Mindset and Impact Virtual Summit. You can get your tickets for the three-day event for free at leadershipmade.com. But enough from me. I'm going to hand it over to me uh, and Dave from the Mindset and Impact Virtual Summit. So here is me, Coach Molly, and Dave Silverberg. It's I lo- I love it the idea that we can run our own road we can f- like lead our own path it's oh and putting oh, yeah. it in a visual like that is so much easier to digest <laughs> for sure for sure and that's what I want to end on because I think that does relate a bit to to what I was you know talking about with making your own path whether it was you know running the shows or doing the unique stuff yeah oh well before we get into the nitty-gritty of the interview i need to show some gratitude because as a young person so for those of you listening at home i met dave when i was uh, i want to say 15 or 16 or mm-hmm. 18 wink wink i i don't know <laughs> what the rules were at the time but <laughs> <pretty> um, relaxed, <laughs> yeah. But I was in high school and my high school English teacher said something to me that has stuck with me forever. And he said, spoken word is not poetry, period, mm-hmm. mic drop. And I had this like guttural reaction to it. And I said, absolutely not. I will prove you wrong. And that sent me on this amazing journey into the world of spoken word and the world of slam. And very soon after I, I shook my fist at my English teacher, I ended up <laughs> at the Toronto Poetry Slam in amazement and i honestly think my my teacher luch love you love you to death sir um i think he said that on purpose to push me to find this new world and to find this new community so thank you from my heart thank you so much for being part of creating that amazing space oh much appreciated thank you for you know bringing your words because for you know the, the slam and the open mic wouldn't be anything with without the people who uh, take the time to write and to perform. It would just be me and the organizers looking dumbly at each other as as the as the time ticks away. So thanks for yeah sharing your words and you were really um, a crowd favorite. I remember. Oh, it it was definitely a really empowering experience because I realized I I know I'm not really supposed to be talking about myself too much in interviews, but the idea of being in a space where you could hear things like RC that you were mentioning before, who does incredible sound poetry and just exploring just the weird and the kooky and people who are redefining a genre um, all the way to people who are using the stage as a political tool to spread a message and to share their, their truth and their experiences in that way. And, and there's so much power in, in having both a creative space and a truth seeking space. Oh, for sure. For sure. And that's you know, something that is rare for a lot, of, I think, youth to find because yeah. their, their schools might not offer that kind of space, especially as more cutbacks kind of roll across Ontario in relation to the arts. So I think when we started Toronto Poetry Slam, we realized that gave youth an opportunity to share what was, you know, toiling around in their in their in their chest. So much so we created Bam Youth Slam, which is just for youth poets between the ages of twelve and nineteen, and and that itself has kind of uh, really taken off. Yeah, and there's, as you mentioned, there's also the wider spoken word community in that we have an annual festival, the Canadian Festival of Spoken Word, where every year it's hosted in a different city and poets from across the country can come together and share their their art with everyone and to see 
um, trends that are similar throughout um, the country, but also to see the unique spice that each city brings. And when I say city people at home, I'm not talking necessarily about just Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver, the big Mm. cities. We're talking now, watching this world evolve, we're seeing small communities like Peterborough and York Region and smaller communities are binding together. All you need is like five people to be on your team and and you can be part of this growing arts community. It's it's just amazing. Yeah, it really is. And, And you mentioned smaller cities and one that stands out to me is Lanark County outside of Ottawa, you know, not many people know about Lanark County in general, but those in the poetry scene know they have some pretty great poets there and you just never know where, where art can come from. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. And to see some members, uh, now we're going into the history of Canadian spoken word a little bit, but to see some members go from one team to another, um, and that's not a bad thing. It's really neat to see how their styles evolve when they're working in a team with different um, creatives around them. Yeah, for sure. And the scene is getting like larger and larger in, in some areas of Canada. So more opportunities are now like available for some poets who might have had to move for school or for work. And like, oh, now I'm in Calgary. Oh, now there's like a place for me to perform those kind of things. Yeah, and being part of uh, the slam scene in Toronto when I was in high school, that's the same that I was experienced when I got to university in Kingston. I was like, there's something missing here. <laughs> yeah. And even though it's, it was really like five people who showed up at the bar once a month and I was able to convince some feature poets to come up and stay on the floor of my apartment for free. And, but it was the, the creative space that was created where people knew it doesn't matter what your belief systems are. It doesn't matter if you're having a good day or a bad day. You can show up here and you can listen with your heart or you yeah. can get up there and you can share um, and it, everyone will be there to back you up. It's yeah, been, for sure. Yeah. I really, that, that's why I embedded myself in that scene, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so let's rewind a bit to at the beginning of your presentation, you said you set yourself a goal and I wonder if you've actually met that goal of creating your own word. And I ask because the vocabulary and the words that we use, the language that we use, in many ways creates our reality. And when we're able to change our language and change the way that we talk about things, we're able to, in many ways, create a new reality. So have you created your own words yet? Well, actually the name of my solo show is a creative word. Unique was something I I want to uh, make uh, as a combination of Jewish and unique. And even though it was, so, it was somewhat polarizing to my friends who I first beta tested it on, who thought like, oh, that's so corny at first. I thought, you know what? Uh, first of all, a one word name for a solo show is, is sometimes quite impacting and, and great for press releases. But I also knew that this was the kind of running theme through my show. I was profiling various Jewish leaders as well as talking about my own journey and how those Jewish trailblazers found their way to the culture through their own path and their own inspiration. And so I felt like Junique was one of my most favorite kind of made up words. I, I believe I, I uh, tried to get the hashtag going when the solo show was around too. So something pithy and, and uh, short like that was, uh, you know, really, really stood out to me. But yeah, I've kind of made up some words down, uh, you know, in, in the past, nothing as remarkable, I think, as, as Junique and probably more corny than, than Junique, but probably uh, the name of my solo show, yeah, stands out to me. I think uh, we should all petition to get Junique into the dictionaries because <laughs> I like it. Uh, that is an incredibly, it's an incredibly descriptive word to explain yeah. the 
the separate individualized paths that we walk in order to understand who we are relative to our past and our ancestors, relative to the way that we were brought up and, and the expectations on us, and as well speaking to the unique experiences that we can all have in our future and the unique path that we can take um, our beliefs and our faiths and our yeah. identities on. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of felt like, it just felt like a right name for that show. And it just also was singular in that there was no other kind of movie, book, TV show, piece of art named that. And that's sometimes a struggle to do when you want to have something out into the world for a long time is you don't want it to be confused with something else out there uh, or misconstrued because nuances and word meanings change. So that, that just felt, yeah, felt at home to me. That's amazing. And I love how it also connects back to your work in journalism. And I love that you brought up that when you interview different people, you have to bring up a journalist's greatest strength, in my opinion. And, and that strength is being able to push judgment aside and really find empathy with the people that you're speaking to and the people that you're telling the stories to. You have yeah. to be kind of an unbiased vessel for the story. Um, that's, that's so true. I mean, you might have some biases that are unconscious and hard to completely separate, but what you go into it is understanding that this person comes from a very different path or background or motivation than, than yourself. And I learned that really at a, at a young age at Ryerson uh, J school, because they taught you that when, when you, you know, second day of class, when you're doing streeters and pushing microphones in people's faces to ask them about their maybe political leanings or who they're going to vote for in the next city election, uh, there has to be that uh, unbiased um, atmosphere you also get, but also non-judgmental and just being open-minded to other people's uh, perspectives, uh, which, which can be very difficult if you have certain hardline views on things and that sometimes will fall into either political or, or spiritual realms. But that is something that, yeah, a great journalist will kind of pride themselves on is being open-minded to different views, even if they run very counter to your own uh, background or upbringing. Did you ever interview someone that had that kind of, a, you had that kind of aversion to in terms of values? Um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely in the past interviewed CEOs and business executives who I could tell main motivation was shareholder value and, and boosting the bottom line as opposed to providing products or services that could help their, their, their customers or have more social justice or socially oriented goals as a company and you know that is kind of somewhat understandable because it is a business with shareholders but I always was and, and and more kind of compassionate to those CEOs and executives who you know seek more than just um, shareholder value and and bringing in revenue and profit but doing something that will you know change the world for the better with with their business even if they do have investors to uh, to answer to totally uh, okay so my favorite part that you brought up the thing that I am going to write on my wall that I love is the fact that you ask yourself how can you improve tomorrow and that question doesn't limit our celebration of our accomplishments it doesn't dampen our creativity that we've shared with the world it doesn't diminish any of that but instead I see it as asking us to grow it asking us to do better um, while also celebrating how well we've done. For sure. But it's easy to say that. 
Have you ever had a moment where asking yourself that question wasn't as easy as we imagine it to be? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one issue I kind of struggle with, and, and I won't name names, but I do have a friend that uh, I've known since junior high, high school, fell into a really dark, ugly drug habit. And I always told myself that kind of mantra of being a better friend for him every year or every day as, as much as I could. But it just was a struggle for, for me to align myself with his values and kind of his darkness that he was facing because he just veered into a path that he didn't really seem to want to pull himself out of and also, you know, aligned himself also with a community that I didn't want to be a part of or expose myself to as well. So there, that, that's an area a bit more, you know, personal than, than creative that, you know, I felt like that was a real struggle to get better at, even though I wanted to be um, a stronger friend and a better friend and a more empathetic friend, that kind of relationship took a, took a hit because I just couldn't, I guess, either pull him out of the darkness or meet him somewhere in the middle. And to be honest, I don't think he wanted to uh, pull himself out of that pit uh, too, um, too much. I mean, he tried to go to rehab as much as any addict will, will try to do, uh, but he kind of fell into the same habits, you know, no fault of his own. Addictions are, are arduous things, something I have never dealt with myself, but have seen only secondhand or, or, or firsthand um, and in this case. So I know all the fault is not on his own willpower, but on, you know, the, the kind of demons that, that he's fighting against. But I think that kind of relationship was really tough for me to keep improving upon, unlike other areas of my life that I felt like incrementally I could be better at. And it's important that you bring up the idea of community as well. There's positive communities and there's negative communities. And I want to go back to the community of, of the spoken word community because it creates a space that asks us to, as I mentioned before, to be both creative and vulnerable, to be yeah. authentic and to be open and to share those um, those moments of difficulty and those moments of celebration with each other. And I remember being outside of um, some of the spoken word events in Toronto and those amazing moments where I wanted to go be a smoker just to be outside with everyone in those moments, <laughs> to, to hear how people would react to what they just heard. And there are yeah. so many poets, myself included, who would walk down the streets back to our, our, um, our public transit or to our cars or whatever, and we'd have voice memos of lines that we'd come up with inspired yeah. by each other and to see each other grow in that way. It was so amazing. But on the other side, there were times where people, myself included, shared things that were incredibly vulnerable and raw and left people, gave people a light in or a, a window into the darker parts of, of some people's lives. Yeah. And as being a slam master and being a host of an event where you're hearing so many different um, stories like this, has there ever been a moment in the spoken word community that left you speechless? More than one. Oh yeah, I mean, like every year, or sometimes even, sometimes every month, if it's been a quite a banner year for for talent in the in the scene, I was I would often be left speechless. It would be it would be tough to um, not be affected by so many artists who you know if they had the right mix of um, great storytelling technique and performance um, stage moxie could really move you to be in their zone to be with them. 
you know, one example I'll share with you is my friend Brendan McLeod, who I mentioned earlier, who does a solo show. The first time I saw him do his solo show about how he has OCD in a way that really cripples his life and shatters sometimes his, his daily um, way of, of living, that, that really impacted me a lot because my father suffers from OCD, a very different kind of style or flavor than what Brendan deals with in terms of the triggers and the rituals. But I knew that what Brendan was dealing with was analogous to what my father deals with, with intrusive thoughts that you can't just push away like me and you can push away thoughts of uh, being hungry or thoughts of, um, you know, wanting to do something. Uh, these are thoughts that have no rhyme or reason behind them. And that just left me speechless that he was able to express that helplessness in such a very visceral and honest way and to share a part of himself that you just don't share with a bunch of strangers that you normally meet, you know, randomly at a bar. But he was telling, you know, uh, dozens of people about this real deep pain that he was facing and something that I, I knew that it, it was choking him up to, to share and that something that he knew that he had to share because it was cathartic for him and, and hopefully educated others about an ailment that I think people think is just all about washing hands and making things clean and, and tidy. Oh, yeah. Oof. Who is, if you had to pick one, no, no, not one. If you had to pick your ultimate slam team, so five people from <laughs> anywhere in Canada, from any point in history, oh. just, just as an idea for people yeah. listening at home who have never heard slam, who are those five top performers that mm. you would want on your team? Sure. I'm, I'm going to go with um, a range of folks from different areas of, of the country. Shane Koizan, um didn't slam quite a lot, but he did dabble in it when we first started the King Festival Spoken Word in 2005. Obviously a world-renowned poet who uh, made a name for himself when he performed at the Vancouver Olympics, but has done a lot of great work beyond that, that poem about Canada. And he's a dear friend and a fantastic poet and storyteller and uses metaphors and similes in a way that is really unlike anyone else. Um, going to Calgary, my friend Amanda Hebert, who used to be in Toronto and was also a co-host of the Toronto Poetry Slam with me for quite many years, is one of the best writers I've ever come across, has great panache and, and zest on stage because of her acting background. And I think she, um, you know, really wowed a lot of audiences. And it's just a shame that she doesn't perform as much as she can because she's a, a full-time a full um, content marketer and, and mother and, and wife. Um, Andre Prefontaine, also from Calgary, now uh, living in Toronto, has long been one of my favorite poets who brings a lot of great um, creativity and humor to his work. And I think what has kind of trended a bit out of poetry these days is a sense of humor that is a bit more playful and funky because things have gotten a lot serious as they should be in, in the world as, um, as racism and uh, sexual violence and gender identity are kind of, you know, three of the main themes I've, I've been seeing in, in poetry these days. But Andre has a great ability to mix um, serious topics with 
a sense of humor that really is quite attractive on stage. Um, thirdly, uh, or fourthly, I would go with Britta B, uh, also a, a great poet in uh, Canada who talks about her upbringing as, as a young black woman here in, in Canada and um, uses her stage in a way that really compels you to listen to everything she says, fantastic voice as well, enunciates, enunciates perfectly, unlike me sometimes, and uh, has done some really fantastic uh, pieces uh, for the black uh, community in Canada and has mentored a lot of youth as well. So I, I see her as a great asset to any kind of team. And uh, fifth, I'll, I'll probably go with uh, Jennifer Alicia Murren in Toronto, an indigenous poet who has really made a name for herself in Toronto, if not Canada, for speaking honest truths about indigenous issues, indigenous rights and injustices, and is a really great writer as well. And I think would fit well with this team of you know varied voices that, that I mentioned earlier. That's amazing. Tens across the board in my Tens eyes. Tens across the board, no splash, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you bring up Amanda as well because oh, yeah. um, I I have won the Toronto Poetry Slam once in my life, yeah, yeah. and that moment totally took my breath away. So there's three rounds, everybody. You need three poems, and you're you can. Well, now read. there's two. Now there's oh, two. Oh, well, it, it, yeah. TPS changed uh, a couple years ago. Oh, well then. <laughs> it used to be three. Yeah, <laughs> it used to be three. So I had one poem memorized, one oh, really? because I thought I was just going to go perform my poem just try it out and that would be it. Then I get called up for the second round. So there's no props. You're not allowed props or anything like that, but you are allowed to bring up your book if you have to read. So I read off my book and I was mortified. I was so scared. I was like, I'm that girl. I came to the slam without being prepared. It was kind of upset. <laughs> and I was kind of upset with myself. And then I got called up for the third round and I had no idea what poem I was going to read. And I looked really nervous. And I looked over at Amanda, who was competing against me in this round. And she just gave me a thumbs up, like, you got this, no matter what. I was like, okay, I can do this. And I performed, and it was an emotional experience. And I ended up being the winner. And I'm on stage with Amanda, and I think it was Crystal. Um, and, oh, yeah. and I get, my name gets called as the winner. And I'm shocked. And Amanda comes over and gives me the biggest hug. And she says, you deserved that. Whispered it in my ear. And I will never forget that. Because to me, she was someone I've always looked up to as, as a performer and as just a strong female woman, like a, an independent thinker, a confident woman. So I, I love the idea that our community has mentorship built into it it's the idea that even though we're competing against each other because there's scores and there's prizes and there's rankings and that kind of stuff but it, that's not what it's about it's about the creating community and, and lighting a fire under each other and yeah it, it, like like to, to that point in a way i've always thought that slam is just a bit of a trick a trick to get people into see a poetry show something that they probably wouldn't normally do on a Saturday night, you know, at, at a hoity-toity place like, like Drake Hotel. And to also inspire people to find like-minded artists, to realize that they're not alone in sharing their vulnerabilities or their stories or their sense of humor with, with others. And I think, you know, the greatest thing that came about 
with spoken word, and hopefully I did mention this in my, in my talk to you, is the friendships, is the relationships that have really lasted long after some poets have stopped slamming or hung up the microphone or even put down the pen and moved on to other areas of creativity. But I've, I was able to you know, stay friends with people like Shane and Amanda and, and Crystal um, all these years because of how I think close you can get as, as poets being so open hearted and vulnerable. And so I'm kind of, I've always been curious if other communities in Canadian arts have that same kind of intimacy, whether it's comedy or break dancing or dance or, or, um, you know, thrash metal, you know, are these kind of communities as intimate with each other or, or as maybe open with each other, or is that the nature of poets being so expressive and being so, you know, here's my naked self, and I hope you love it or hate it, but this is who I am. Oh, that that's deep. That's yeah, it's a whole it's a whole other spiel. <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely about friendship, and it's about helping each other grow. And the other aspect, um, the other thing that you did, I don't know if you still do it, um, but you you used to do the sessions in high schools, in elementary schools, right? And yeah, teaching, I still do that. teaching the joy of slam and spoken word to young people. What have those experiences taught you? That that has really been so enriching for me because what I what I loved about Toronto Poetry Slam is reaching that that massive audience. That that's great, you know, 150 people packing um, a room on a on a Friday or Saturday night, but also when you're able to have a bit more intimate conversations with young poets who might have never been exposed to spoken word, who left questions about poetry and making a living with it even, or what is the right way to write a poem and, or to perform a poem, that, that can really be uh, so fulfilling as a poet, as an educator, because high schools try to do the best they can with teaching poetry, especially page poetry to students, but I don't think they put too much strength or too much um, mindfulness into bringing spoken word into the curriculum. So I think it is reliant on, on folks like me and, and so many others across Canada who go into schools to teach poetry, to expose students to another side of an art form that isn't going to be in, in the curriculum and isn't going to be on mainstream television or on, in mainstream magazines and newspapers right from jump. They have to kind of dig to find this kind of art form. And the fact that it's underground, I think, is appealing to, to youth because it does have its cachet appeal that it's always a little bit rebellious or rogue or under the radar. And, you know, to, to reach schools, uh, that's definitely something I want to uh, hopefully mentor other educators to do as well. Uh, it's, something not, it's not something I do as much as, as I've done before because of my journalism work has taken up so much of my time. And there have been some cutbacks to schools as well in Ontario that's forcing them to not hire uh, educators for these ad hoc sessions. Um, and now that I'm retired from uh, Toronto Poetry Slam as well, I'll also maybe find ways to you know, bring education of spoken word to communities. Um, that's not going to be so one-off, maybe hopefully a bit more holistic and, and ongoing. Oh, that's amazing. Spoken word is such an incredible educational tool because it weaves in, you have words, you have the art of performance and you have the art of confidence. You have the creativity of 
spoken word has no limits. Like I've mentioned before, right. we have poets who are doing sound poetry and using <laughs> sounds that their, their bodies make all the way up to people who are creating Shakespearean inspired sonnets and whatnot. Um, so that, that unrestrictedness allows for such a creative flow. And then you have the art of um, just generally getting on stage because that, yeah. that can be really terrifying for some people and really outside of drama class which again is be seeing lots of cuts you don't have that that space for students to to grow in those areas so that's yeah i mean to be so open on paper is one thing because you don't really see the reactions of people who are reading about either your trauma or your truth or your your joys but to get that kind of reaction too can be can be frightening too, because you're like, oh, how are people going to react to, let's say, you know, in the mind of Brendan uh, about the OCD that I'm, uh, you know, afflicted with, or um, are people going to laugh at this joke that I threw into a poem about, um, about my lack of faith within, you know, Judaism. And that, that can be definitely scary, but I think just like anything, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it. And it can be a thrill to a lot of folks. I know people who, I've kind of eschewed the the page poetry way and just kind of got almost addicted to that reaction from audiences or even the scores on on how they did with their poetry because it is just so much more immediate and and raw and you know there is also the after effect of you know what how can I improve I just got immediate feedback on on my piece based on oh that crowd didn't laugh at this joke or that crowd you know um, maybe I could tell didn't get that metaphor or that line. That's really harder to get with page poetry unless you have an editor always feeding you feedback. So I think sometimes that can make you a better writer too and a better performer. What did you learn when you moved from that uh, world, that stage of the three minute slam poem to your own stage, long format, mm -hmm. night after night? Well, I definitely learned to tell a deeper and more nuanced story about something that I was dealing with, which was my, you know, up and down relationship with Judaism and, and its culture. And it forced me kind of to examine all the many facets of my upbringing from going to synagogue to my bar mitzvah to my brother who became a, a cantor in a synagogue, which is a liturgical leader who works alongside the rabbi and what that relationship was like with him and, and my father. So, I couldn't have done that, you know, in a three-minute poem or a five-minute poem. I could have maybe talked about one of those things or maybe half of those things. So the fact that I was able to wrap all those ideas and profile fascinating people and Holocaust survivors in this show really made it feel like I was almost writing a book as opposed to an article that, you know, to put it into that journalism uh, kind of analogy. Um, another thing it taught me is how to use various props and multimedia in a really interesting way because now I was allowed to use lighting and photos and props on stage on stools in a way that could, you know, help my story come alive. And I was just relying always in slam poetry and spoken word poetry on just my words being the sole thing that the audience focuses on for good reason. Um, it definitely made me a, a better and tighter writer, but I was able to be more creative with lighting and props and multimedia with Junique and, it's inspiring me to think of how I can be more creative and even use more different kinds of multimedia with my next solo show. So it definitely got me thinking on areas that 
really wouldn't have been top of mind if I was just doing uh, a poem on stage. Oh, that's fantastic. What, what big, what's the biggest misconception that, you're, that you've busted on your journey to Junique? Hmm. That I wasn't good enough as a performer to memorize 60 minutes. You know, to, to go from my longest poem that I've ever, ever memorized, which is probably around six minutes, to six zero, 60 is, is a big leap is 10 times, you know, obviously longer than that, that piece. So I felt nervous that my memory wouldn't be uh, quite, quite sharp enough that I would get nervous and anxious on stage so much. So I would flub my lines and maybe break into tears. Who knows? Cause I have no way to kind of compare that experience to, you know, just doing a five minute poem. And the fact that I was able to debut the show at the Al Green Theater in Bloor's Medina with only kind of one flub section of the show that was more of a skip than an actual mispronunciation or, or mistake in my words um, was so gratifying that it told me my fears were really about being anxious about something that has yet to come to be, that I didn't really know, you know, reason or logic to be fearful of this because in my other past performances of even five minute poems, I really never really flubbed lines or missed entire sections. It was more about, I think my, my ego needing to be coddled a bit, my confidence needing to be uh, elevated a bit because I was challenging myself with something so outside my comfort zone that I knew I was, you know, going to face a challenge, but I definitely busted that pre you know, misconception because I was able to go to Calgary and Ottawa and Blue Mountain Resort with this one hour show and also perform it um, almost flawlessly, uh, which I'm proud to say. Oh, that's amazing. What is the most interesting thing you learned about Judaism on this journey? Hmm. Well, I've definitely been exposed in my past life, uh, sorry, my, my past education to the Holocaust and what um happened at you know Buchenwald or or all the you know different camps there but to talk to a survivor in Ottawa in person and to learn from him what Moshe Krauss you know dealt with when he was at Bergen-Belsen and to you know hear about the mud underneath his feet the you know feces covered bread that he was forced to eat the the pain he felt at seeing his entire family uh, get killed but he was spared because he was a singer that the German commander loved so much that he was forced to sing for him every Sunday for, uh, for years, you know, gave me just a bit more clarity and a lot more compassion for what people dealt with when they went through the Holocaust. Because I think we all can watch documentaries and movies like Schindler's List for, for, for days and, and feel impacted, but until you hear it, from someone who lived through it themselves and be in their home and see the tears rolling down their eyes. That definitely taught me a lot about the horrors of that experience and how you know, strong you had to be to get through it in a way that I have no kind of analogous comparison to anything that, that, that you know, I've gone through. Having had that experience and, and that honorable experience, being able to speak to a Holocaust survivor, do you mm -hmm. feel responsible for telling that story now? Oh, definitely. And that's why I wrote that piece in Junique from his perspective. It's the only piece in Junique or segment of Junique that's written in the first person. Because I felt like it, it had to come from his voice 
from his direct quotes that I was able to tape on the recorder and from his experience that he shared in his autobiography that came out a couple of years ago. Um, and I felt responsible to educate myself on various horrors of not just that camp, but all the other camps as well. And, um, you know, the, the cruelty behind it. So I definitely felt responsible to tell his story in a meaningful way. And when he saw the show in Ottawa, when he's able to come with his wife Rivka to see, um, you know, that part of, you know, me sharing his story, I was thankful that, you know, he told me I respected his story, um, thoughtfully and respect and, and, you know, respectfully. And as I, I was able to give him the, uh, he was able to give me the assurance that that I that I, I did a, a a good job, which was really um, th- I, I was thankful for. Being a storyteller, it can be kind of burdensome sometimes to yeah. to have other people's stories and have that responsibility to share it. But it's so important. And coming back to the spoken word community, I know from my own experience in the community. It's the power, the power comes from sharing those stories and not living in silence. And we can reflect that all the way back in time. We can reflect it back to Holocaust survivors. We can reflect it back to genocide survivors. We can reflect it to our current day to people who are experiencing violence and racism and oppression of, of all sorts. So that hopefully in the future, we're these stories are commonplace. These stories are accessible for people so that we can be, we can relive that history so that we're not reliving it in the future. And that's why that old tradition is so important. I think in both what I did with Toronto Poetry Slam and giving that platform for poets to to share their truths and my own kind of journey of self-exploration with, with Junique, because, you know, oral tradition was how, you know, the Greeks told their stories to the children of how the Bible was first passed on from one generation to the next before it was written um, as a text in the King James Bible. So I think that has long been kind of, um, you know, situated in, in our evolution, in our bones and in our DNA to tell stories that will hopefully be passed on and that we can learn from. And, and written word has its value, of course, too. And I'm a huge fan of what, where written word can also educate us. But I think the old tradition is where it all began. And that's, I think, uh, hopefully something that more children are, are being educated about in, in schools, not just in Ontario, but across Canada, of that importance of being that, that storyteller. And now we have the wonderful technology of being able to record people's stories, their firsthand accounts, and share those and make those resources available for young people. Here in Canada, we're, we're educating our young people a lot more. We could do a lot more um, in regards to our history of residential schools and the injustices we've, we've perpetrated against our Indigenous communities. But it's in the power of being able to hear someone's firsthand account of how those injustices have impacted their life that is so incredibly powerful. It's just the most amazing tool, I think, is, is the sound of someone else's voice speaking their truth. Right. And, and I think that's why conferences like, like yours can be really impacting to a lot of people who, um, sure, they might be going through some Zoom fatigue these days, but I think when there's something really nourishing and, and mentally stimulating uh, about what someone's shared experiences uh, are, then I think, you know, we, we all can learn from them. Absolutely. So I'm asking all of our speakers one final question because I'm all about looking forward into the future. <laughs> so Dave, what does the what does a better world look like to you and how do you fit into that? Hmm. 
Great question, and it's a big question. But uh, to go maybe um, micro, I think a better world would be where ideas are accepted without judgment on both sides of the of, uh, fronts um, in a way that can provoke intelligent debate, uh, nuanced conversation, that it's not as black and white as you're right or you're wrong. And I think that happens a lot in politics, but that can happen a lot in, in the arts as well and in how judgments are made on you know who gets funding also and then who doesn't. I would like to definitely see spoken word elevated to a level where it is accepted in the education system as um, a unit of programming that will inspire youth to realize what else is out there in terms of artistic media and ways that they can share their stories. And I know Ontario school boards and Canadian school boards have been overwhelmed by many other uh, challenges these days beyond trying to add something else to their English or writer's craft curriculum, but I think it's vital for youth to realize there, there is an open mic or a stage for them and that there is a mentor out there for them. If they can find it on YouTube, that's great, but if it's better exposed to them through the education system, then I think that's going to be a way to um, offer a shortcut to people who are interested in spoken word, but maybe don't have the bandwidth to do all the digging themselves, but can hopefully be exposed to it through, you know, enterprising and forward thinking educators who realize there's more to poetry than what's being printed on the page. Oh, that's so true. Oh, we're coming to the end of our time together. Do you have any last words for everyone? Um, I would say that, you know, we, we, we live in a world now where we're working from home more than ever before. Something I've been thinking about and we're talking to each other remotely, but I think even with this separation of physical closeness, there is now an opportunity to be closer to folks that we may not have ever been exposed to before. That technology can bring us closer together with varying perspectives and varying outlooks on whether it's art or education or spirituality. So I think at first it can be a bit depressing to think about the lack of in-person conversations we, we are having now, uh, we're, we're, that we're not having now, but I'm trying to find, you know, the light in, in the great clouds, as they say, and trying to educate myself by taking courses online and trying to expose myself to other uh, viewpoints on either YouTube or, or media, media like this to give myself a more rounded education that maybe I didn't have the opportunity to really expose myself to when I was in this routine that we were all into pre-pandemic. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us at the Mindset and Impact Virtual Summit. It's been a blast having you back. Oh, thank you. And hopefully I'll uh, be able to see you on the spoken word stage once things return to normal, question mark. <laughs> I take that as a challenge. I'm coming back, everybody. Right. Please do. Please do. <laughs> oh. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me, by the way. So once again, that was Dave Silverberg from the Toronto Poetry Slam and so many more places. 
I'm going to sign off this episode, but first I want to remind you if you're interested in seeing Dave's talk or any of the talks from the Mindset and Impact Virtual Summit, you can get your ticket for free at leadershipmade.com. Three days of awesome speakers, let me tell you, let me tell you. All right, so that's it for this episode, my friends. I'm Coach Molly from Three Pines Leadership. This is the Lifelong Podcast. My glasses have a ton of glare today. And until next time, remember, I love you and be excellent to each other.